You're listening to Creatives Prevail, unraveling the stories of creative professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creatives Prevail. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is producer, engineer, and studio owner, Sean Giovanni. In this interview, we discuss how makeshifting his apartment to produce music in Nashville led to owning his own recording studio and media space called The Record Shop. We also dive into the importance of developing your own brand. Lastly, we talk about his latest venture, Studio Musician Academy, which is so cool. It's like masterclass for studio musicians. Let's get into it. Hey, Gio, how's it going? What's happening, man? How are you today? I'm doing fantastic, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Good, good. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I want to mention, I I usually like to talk about how I got to know the guests that are on the show. And we met through the NAMM show. Yeah, man. It's coming up. And it's coming. Yeah, it's coming up. I can't believe it. It's coming up already. And uh, but yeah, you were uh, we were fellow panelists um, at the NAM show all talking about brand endorsements. And we came about because, uh, in fact, the NAM show itself, the organization NAM uh, uh, hooked us up basically and said, hey, you know, can this you know, can this person come on on board the panel? And that's kind of how we met. I mean, we met the first time at the NAM show. Yeah, absolutely. So that was that was great. I always enjoyed doing those panels. They're a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was a great experience. And. You know, every, and what I like about it too is that everyone had something to share and everyone had something to say, um, especially when it came to brand partnerships, because that really can cover a lot of ground. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about you. Um, so how I always like to start with how did you get started in music to begin with? Man, music has kind of always been the biggest passion outside of playing sports when I was a kid. I was kind of was an athlete and I just loved music. My dad is a huge music fan and a very diverse music fan. You know, I talked to a lot of other like fellow musicians. They're kind of like, I was always listening to rock in the house or country in the house or something like that. My dad, like every time we were in the car, he had a different um, record that he was playing. It might've been obscure. It might've been popular. It was like across the board from, from classic music to like modern electronic music and hard rock and hip hop. Um, and so that really just got me, I guess, excited about music. I didn't really realize it back then, but I think back on it now. And that was really like my introduction to just a wide range of music. And I think really what set me up to want to have a career as a, as a producer, as opposed to like an individual artist. That's amazing. Did did you all have, uh, do you play an instrument yourself? Well, that's kind of why I got into production and engineering. Um, my first introduction to like music lessons and, and that sort of thing was, I guess, in elementary school. I was really fortunate to go to a school that had a music class. And so like K through five, we had, uh, you know, a time each week where we went to music class and we learned a little bit about basic music theory. We learned a lot about um, orchestral instruments and then, you know, more modern, like, you know, guitars and drums and that sort of thing. Um, and, and basic things about rhythm and um, key and scales and that sort of thing. And I, I feel really fortunate to have had that education. And I think it's really important for us to continue to try to keep music in the schools because that was a really great foundation um, for me around maybe like, I don't know, third or fourth grade. My dad got me some uh, a, a cheap little guitar and some guitar lessons. Um, and I was really excited about just starting to learn how to shred on the guitar. And I, but I didn't really like progress in it as quickly as I thought I would. And I was getting a, getting a little frustrated and around middle school, after taking guitar lessons for a couple of years and kind of, you know, being okay, being able to hang, but not being as good as I wanted to be. 
um, I saw a DJ on MTV Spring Break. Um, and there's this TV show where they go down to Cancun and there's this huge party. They'd have music performances and they'd have DJs spinning. And I saw that and was like, I want to do that. That looks like a blast. So I think it was like sixth grade. I was um, cutting some lawns in the summer and I saved up some money to buy a couple of turntables and a mixer and, um, and bought a few records and stuff. And then uh, Berkeley College of Music had a, a course that they had created in the art of turntablism, which took like traditional music theory and and brought it into the idea of scratching records and matching beats and you know djing um and i bought that and just dug into it and got really excited so it was kind of a way that i incorporated what i did know at the time about music theory into this cool you know djing thing that when you think about djing you don't always think about it especially these days everybody just having a laptop and they press you know a button and it does it all um but, but thinking about being a dj as a musician you know um, but i learned how that aspect you know could be related to music theory so that got me into just listening to a ton of music and through middle school and high school um i would dj parties and and the and the dances at, at my schools and at surrounding schools and stuff and i started a little bit of like a mobile dj business and looking back through that that was a great education and learning how to read an audience and get a feel for what moves people and what doesn't move people and uh and also just how production works just the combination of sounds and when you're DJing, you're trying to think about how to match different tracks together and go in and out and transition and keep a steady flow of energy. Um, all of that makes you start thinking really deeply into all the elements that are in the track and tempo and groove and feel and emotion, you know, how a track makes you feel. So I think that was a really great, being a DJ was a really great foundation for me to get into um, engineering and production. So through that time in high school, as I started to learn more about, you know, how records were made and got really excited about that, um, I, I bought a little four track cassette recorder, a couple of cheap microphones and set up a makeshift studio in my parents' basement. And if I wasn't at, at practice and for one of the sports that I played, I was in there making music or recording my friends uh, and just figuring out how all that stuff worked. And, um, and I did that uh, through high school. And then we had a few projects that we, we created. And one of my buddy's dads worked at a uh, post-production studio that had like some CD burners and stuff. So I brought these cassette tapes down to the studio and they put them in the system and transfer them over to digital, printed up CDs for us. And then me and my friends and uh, and, and some of our, our friends at surrounding schools around the area just went out and started selling these CDs to people and stuff and started a little, I wouldn't call it a record label, but it was a little like mini distribution system or whatever. Um, and that just got me really excited about the possibility of that being a producer and engineer creating and distributing music could be a career, not just like a hobby or some like, you know, big dream, but I saw it as, at that age at a, as a very like legitimate career you know opportunity and this was still right around middle school high school time that you were doing all this yep wow that's amazing and i, I gotta admit, uh mention too that you were taking essentially a co college level course while in middle school that's 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 amazing feat as well because i mean the, the, you know it's it's college level right so that that's truly amazing that you took the initiative and started educating yourself especially you know at that young of an age yeah, I was just really excited about it and I wanted to learn how to, you know, to get great at it. And I saw that as a good starting point resource. I wouldn't necessarily say that it had like college level challenges necessarily, but there were some pretty complex, like, you know, music theory kind of elements within it. So you mentioned also uh, something that was really interesting was the fact that you were doing some distribution as well and burning CDs and like kind of being like a pseudo label. Have you thought about becoming a label or doing that side of the business or, or is it always been producing and engineering? 
That's a good question. Uh, it's definitely something that like that I've you know considered and and all that, but I really just enjoy the creative process uh, a lot more than the other side. And I think that there's people that are much more uh, experts at that side of the field that can you know that can take that on. So I don't necessarily have an aspiration to um, turn what I do into a record label, but part of what I've found with especially with developing artists that I find were really great talent, um, young or, or, or early in their career, I often end up kind of taking the role of pseudo manager for a period of time for a lot of the artists that um, that I that I develop. And I think it's very important as a producer and engineer to know as, and learn as much about the record side of the business as you can uh, to be able to empower and educate the people that you're working with, which makes you more valuable to them. As a Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. I've seen a number of producers that that would kind of blend into that role of either label or manager. And we're in a very interesting industry where the, you know, every everyone's roles kind of blend. There's there's a major crossover amongst everyone between whether it's a manager, producer, or label. Sometimes we act in you know, not only just just in general kind of weaving in and out of different roles and responsibilities, but sometimes like taking on multiple roles within a position. So sometimes manager is also the producer or sometimes uh, the producer is also the label. Like that they actually is two definable roles that actually they are doing both. Right. Yeah. I think part of that seems from my understanding of the history of music, you know, part of that seemed to happen like a couple decades ago when there was a pretty big like drop in the, you know, in record sales and just like the business of the record industry and people had to start doing kind of multiple jobs, uh, in order to cover all the things that needed to be accomplished because the revenue wasn't high enough to have all those people. But what I recognized early in my career was that starting to, de to develop those skill sets to be able to support the artists that you work with, as I mentioned before, make it make you a more valuable asset to them and can create more of a long-term um, you know, relationship. But I noticed that it wasn't, it wasn't something that I really had to like try to set out to convince an artist of, because as a producer, you have such a close relationship with their creative energy and their vision for things that you're, you almost become the best person to be able to describe what their goals are to other uh, people. And so that's kind of how the record shop developed into more of a multimedia production company, as opposed to a recording studio, because I had artists coming in and we're working on their song. And then I hear them, or, they, or maybe we have a conversation about a challenge that they're having with the video director that they hired. And, you know, they're having trouble communicating with them on what their, you know, their vision is. And maybe the director's being a little bit stubborn and they don't have anybody to help, you know, manage it for them. Or they've hired a handful of different, you know, photographers and people haven't delivered their content on time. And there's nobody to really hold them accountable except for the artist. And they're really stuck in, in the modern age of the recording industry. When you're starting your career, you're stuck kind of doing all of the jobs of what a team would have once you get to a, you know, higher level in the industry. So I found that as a producer developing that really close, intimate, creative relationship with the artists, it was very natural for me to then be able to support them in those other aspects of things. Um, and it may not necessarily be a path for everyone, but for me, I was, I've always been really intrigued on like the visual side of things and multimedia and marketing, that stuff interests me. So it's something that I enjoy working on with artists. Uh, and then it became a natural progression where the record shop grew into more of a multimedia production company where like, I'm a record producer. That's what I love doing. Um, and that's what I spend most of my time on. But if an artist needs to create a series of content for a social, you know, strategy, I would love to jump in and help uh, executive produce the, you know, the plan for that and help them put a team together, uh, you know, through that. So in the early days of, of being in Nashville, when I was, you know, building relationships and learning how the town worked, 
I started focusing a lot on becoming friends and partners with people that were experts in other aspects of the field. And that helped me become, and the record shop become a really valuable resource for the people that come and work with us. They can trust us to produce a great record for them, but if they need another aspect of things, we can help them with that too. That's very, very smart. And yeah, I agree that everyone needs a team and it's very smart to to associate yourselves, especially with experts in different fields and putting it together because there are many creators that they're, extremely talented but they just do not know where to start or who you know who to trust or what you know or kind of even what kind of team to build out and it's is that you become more of a resource when you're pulling multiple different skill sets together so that you can deliver to them because like also the other thing too is that to you you are even though your your job for the most part is to produce the record itself you want that record to, to do well. You want it to be financially successful because that also looks good on you. So to give them the tools and resources that are in addition to producing an amazing record to also helping them get that record out and to help market it and to have other uh, components such as visual media to be a complement to that is so important. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're in a stage in your career where you're working with you know early early stage artists, and yeah. I think that when we're getting started, we're thinking about it in the gig mentality where we're like, okay, in order to make a living with this craft, we have to fill our schedule up with sessions. And we're thinking about it on like a hourly basis, you know, which is probably how you're usually setting up your rates and stuff. Um, or like a per song basis, maybe if you're doing, if you're more focused on like mixing or mastering or that sort of thing. And, um, th but that's very limiting because then you just have to keep chasing down the next gig and the next gig. But if we figure out a way to be able to be more valuable to the people that we work with and develop like, a, you know, a deeper relationship, we don't have to become a producer and engineer and video director and editor and photographer and graphic designer and website designer and, you know, all of that. We just have to develop the resources to be able to support our artists with creating and helping to put, you know, a team around them. And then now you have this more like long-term relationship that can build as opposed to trying to focus on like one gig that, you know, that leads to the next gig, um, if you're able to translate those relationships into a few different revenue sources by being able to take part in managing those projects, you know, for the artist. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up because you're going into the, the business aspect of things. And this is true, you know, for freelancers or business owners in general is that cost of client acquisition. You know, it can be quite high depending upon how much it takes to you know, client acquisition for anyway doesn't know. I mean, literally what sounds like it's, it's, you know, trying to get clients, right? It's a lot harder to do that than trying to have a returning client where they already have that relationship with you. It's a lot easier to have them come back. But especially with something when it comes to producing and engineering, you know, your client may have one record, you know, it could be once a year, it could be once every couple of years. So even if they want to come back to you because of the expenses involved with recording music, they may come back, you know, it may take a while before they come back. So having other avenues for them to want to come back to you to help, you know, for your services that helps with that, you know, that re repeating, that repeating client. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will say also, like, there's a common question that I get asked about, like, you know, how do you set rates and how do you deal with like increasing your rates over time? And, you know, from when you get started and, um, and I hear a lot of people say, you know, like just, well, when you're getting started in this, in this career of, you know, producing engineering, you're working with a lot of early stage artists and artists are all broke and they don't have any money and that sort of thing. And um, that can be a challenging thing for sure. I'm not saying that it's not, but what I've found is that 
the more value that I focused on adding to the relationship, whether it was just introducing them to someone, being a resource, being just generally reliable and making sure that you got everything done on time, there'd be times where artists may go try a different studio that's cheaper strictly for that reason, and then discover that they, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, then discover that that situation might be cheaper, but it's taken them three weeks longer to get their tracks back or they're, they keep getting sessions canceled on them or, you know, the variety of, you know, things where, you know, the adage of, you know, you get what you pay for sort of thing. And people will recognize that over time. And then by setting a certain value for your work, you will begin as long as you're giving that value to the back to the client. I've found that it becomes less challenging to deal with the idea of like the broke musician that you can't, that doesn't have any money to pay for a session um, because you're very clear on the level of service and the value, you know, that you're offering and not in an, in an egotistical way, um, but just in a very focused way where you're very intentional about providing a really great experience and remembering that it's a service industry and, you know, treating them that way that you're working for them and um, they're not there for you, you know, keeping the vibe really comfortable and positive um, and always doing what you say you're going to do and delivering things, you know, on time or ahead of time um, to make sure that they, they know that you're a very reliable, dependable resource and that goes along with the education of things the more that you know about the industry when you're working with early stage artists the more that you can educate or support them and be a resource for them and then now they see the value of that so an artist that would have would have thought that they would only be comfortable paying maybe half of what your rate is is now totally comfortable because they feel the most comfortable in the environment that you've created for them Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I know that especially those uh, producers and engineers that are just starting out, they sometimes will feel that they need to get that portfolio going, which is true, like to a degree of you need to have, you know, your reputation essentially behind you or show of some sort of showcase of work. But the same token, you don't want to do a race to the bottom of trying to make yourself an undercut everyone else just so that you can get the business because uh, not only, like you said, is that if you're cutting, you know, if you're trying to cut corners, and now you have to delay the project because you gave them gave uh, somebody a really good deal, but now you have to delay them because you have another project coming along that is giving you more money. It just get, it just makes a bad situation in, for everyone involved. So both on both sides, both as the artist looking for the right producer and studio to record their album or record their, you know their their release um as well as on the other side as the producer engineer you know you really don't want to do what you know race to the bottom of having the lowest rates possible because again it's it's you like you said it's pay what you get yeah absolutely there's a couple ways that i learned to navigate that one was a really great piece of advice that i got from one of my teachers when i went to um audio school and he said you know if you're in a position where you really want to work with an artist but their budget is a little bit under what you would normally charge um, if you're going to give them a deal, you know, always make sure that you're charging something. But then when you send them the invoice, bill it at your normal rate and then discount it, the, the amount that you're doing it, you know, cheaper for. So that way, when they're paying for it, they see the value. They, they're looking at the invoice and they see this, you know, bigger number. And then they go to the bottom and they see, you know, partner discount. I put homie discount um, when I would do that back in the day. And, um, and now they see, wow, this person is really wants to invest in me, but they also see this is the value of what of the person that I'm, you know, that I'm working with. That can be a really helpful way. Uh, another way that I've looked at is trying to think about breaking down your production. Um, when you think about your production process, it goes into several stages. And I've found that 
and it, it's fairly common to say, okay, it's going to cost X amount per song to from start to finish. And some production companies, and totally cool, I have no issue with it, but would have like here's you know fifty percent deposit now, and you pay the the rest when it's done. Or some people make you pay a hundred percent upfront, that sort of thing. Some ways that I learned to kind of navigate with independent artists is to break the budget down into the six or seven stages that we're going through. So if it's you know pre-production, recording, overdubs, editing, uh, vocals, background vocals, mixing, mastering, um, break that all down into itemized. Um, places and then you can spread that budget out over time and you know think creatively about how to work with the artists in the current state where a lot of artists are releasing singles as opposed to full projects let's say a band wants to come in and track and cut like 10 songs with you and you know work on an album and you talk to them about you know a brand new artist releasing an album if you just throw 10 songs out it's one opportunity to you know to make a release and make a statement but if you break that up into 10 individual singles that you're going to release once a month for the entire year now you can create a really strong, you know, marketing plan. So you've given them some value to understand how they're going to be able to make a stronger impact and have a stronger strategy with their releases. But you can also say, hey, why don't we, why don't I break down this budget and I'll show you what it'll cost for us to track 10 songs. And then over the course of this year, we're going to complete each one of those songs based on a certain time frame. So now you can look at breaking that budget down and spreading it out a lot further. And they go from either not working with you or trying to do something a lot cheaper to now spending a lot more money in the long term and being able to have a better product as a result of it um, because you thought creatively about how to how to work with them to spread their budget out and also do it in a way that's going to serve them better in the way that they release songs. So that's something that that I've also done quite a bit. That's very, very smart because you're right that, you know, depending upon, of course, the budget of artists, and especially if it's an, a developing artist, usually their budgets are can be relatively small. So helping them break that down into the various different stages. So first of all, making sure that, A, you're getting paid for the work that you're doing, which is the most important aspect of it. But on the same flip side is being understandable and and to make it more digestible chunks for them financially where they can spread that out over a period of time. It's great because, again, that also not only does that make them feel more comfortable working with you because you're willing to work with them on on the budget and help them figure out what's going to take to make this happen. But at the same token too, they're going to, it's again, it's, it's now consistent income for yourself because now you're getting, you're getting income over a period of time where instead of reducing the budget for what they have at that point in time, um, or, or again, or again, trying to figure out other ways that may not get the best product possible. You're just spreading it out. So it's a very, very smart move. Yeah, it seems to work well. And and when you look at it long term, as as you just said, you know, the artist may have just come in and record recorded one song if they had to pay it all up front and do it all at once. But if you think creatively about how to spread it out, now they're spending five, ten times as much money that year with you. And now your your uh you know, client value and your cost of acquisition, you know, ratio is much stronger. Exactly. Absolutely. So one of the things I do want to talk about is the fact that you have your own recording studio, which is a, now I've seen pictures online. I, I definitely need to see it in person because this is such a beautiful space, like absolutely gorgeous space. And I know that is a dream of many producers and engineers is to own their own recording studio. And then that is a major jump from having a career as a producer engineer to being a recording studio owner. So can you talk about how that came about, like how, how are you able to get to the point of owning your own recording studio? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a, it was a long and challenging journey for sure. Um, and when I set out 
to get to the point that I'm at now and and beyond, you know, still working on getting to the next, you know, stages of things as we always are as, you know, creatives. I didn't necessarily have the intention of owning a recording studio, traditional recording studio. My thought and my and looking at things, I entered the industry in 2006. That was when I got that's when I started and moved to Nashville. Uh, at that time, many of the commercial studios were shutting down ter- or, or turning into schools. Um, the, the traditional business model was very challenging for them to be able to you know maintain because the budgets were declining so much. Artists weren't booking studios, you know, locking them out for six months at a time. You know, and and so I saw that the business model of a studio, which is basically you build this massive space, you spend a ton of money um, designing it acoustically, then you put a million dollars worth of equipment in it, um, and then you have a day rate that you can book on that space, and that's the maximum amount of revenue that you can generate, you know, from that space. So the um, the model works if you can book the space 100% of the time, and the rates can be at a level that's going to help you you know, offset your overhead and you're, you know, you're profiting enough from it. Um, and then you also have to pay, you know, employees and stuff. Um, my concept was that if, if I developed a production company that had a facility, we could have a range of different, um, services that we could offer as opposed to just studio rental. And we could be focused on projects with artists that would encompass a wider range of things than just, than just booking studio time on an hourly or daily, you know, rate. So that was my goal when I started out. It wasn't necessarily to own a traditional recording studio. It was to run a successful production company. That was that, and and initially that was focused on audio. But then as I started to kind of venture into supporting artists on different aspects of multimedia, that grew into a vision for starting more of a multimedia production company whose primary expertise was in audio and had partners to be able to help support, you know, the other aspects of things. So that that was the idea to develop the ability to be able to have a a variety of revenue streams to support a production company as opposed to traditional recording studio. Um, Now how I got there, um, I started with a apartment on Music Row in 2006. Um, It was above a publishing office um, down on 16th Avenue. Uh, And if you're not familiar with Music Row, that's the area in Nashville where many of the record labels, publishing houses, uh, recording studios, uh, most of the music industry was kind of congregated at the time. It has since spread out a little bit. Um, but for decades, that was the area where the music business in Nashville, you know, existed. And it's such a cool, magical place to walk up and down, you know, the streets and stuff and all the history. So I was very fortunate to be able at that time, it was not nearly as expensive as it is now um, in this area. So it, I was able to, you know, it was like 500 bucks a month to have an apartment on Music Row. It was above a publishing building. So I basically turned the apartment into a makeshift studio. I had a couch that I slept on in there. Um, built out one of the closets to be like an ISO booth, set up a desk and, you know, and all that. And, uh, and it was, it was kind of legit because it was above this office. So it kind of seemed like maybe it was another office or whatever, you know, I'm sure some people realized that I wasn't leaving the place, but, um, <laughs> but that, that, uh, that worked for a while. And then I just, I went out to, um, to start trying to find artists to work with. Uh, I moved here for uh, internship at a major labels recording studio and through a few little challenges that that internship ended up falling through and i was had interviewed at all the places in town and it was just i couldn't get a job at guitar center i got turned down there so it was just it was i I was just kind of felt a bit defeated and i was kind of you know on my own but i knew that i wanted to make this work and i had to start with a freelance path so i never really had an 
internship or an entry-level job. I just started as a freelancer, uh, which meant that every night, if I wasn't working on a session with an artist, I was going out to a show and trying to meet folks or going to an event um, anywhere that I could go where like-minded people were going to be that hopefully I could run into someone and start a conversation that might lead to a relationship that would eventually, you know, lead to some work. And uh, that started to work um, pretty well. Um, and I also got a part-time job DJing at a club downtown, which was another great place to be because it was the most popular non-country nightclub in Nashville. There was a line down the street every night. Fire Marshal was always like kicking people out of the place because it was packed. So being the DJ there was great because everybody wants to come up and talk to the DJ, hang out in the DJ booth. So I met a lot of really great people and, and built a lot of you know relationships through that and learned how the downtown scene worked with performances and venues and getting artists into places and stuff. Um, so I had a, a somewhat, uh, I had a stable, you know, income from this DJ gig that was going to pay my rent and allow me to buy ramen and just kind of, you know, survive. And I spent the rest of my time either sitting in front of my computer, working on, working on a track, composing something, practicing if I didn't have someone to work with or working on, uh, on a session with an artist. And most of those artists at that point were singer songwriters, um, the people that were, that were new to town, like myself. Um, just trying to get some demos down. And that was most of what I was able to do at the time. I could build a track, like program a track, or I could record like a, a guitar vocal, you know, type thing and then build some, you know, some stuff around it. Uh, so that started to develop a bit, um, but there's a lot of options for that. So I found that one of the challenges was that I was going out to places that were like the most popular places where like published songwriters were performing, just trying to make relationships there which was great that are good, like foundational long-term things. But as far as short-term, like getting work, I wasn't getting any work from those types of places. When I started stumbling into the dive bars and like the random spots that, that were having writer's rounds that pretty much anybody could walk in the door and sign up for, it took a little bit more time, but through hanging out, you know, maybe a, a few nights a week at some of these places, eventually I might find one person that I thought I could connect with creatively and that I really want to work with. And then maybe out of, out of like that month, I might have met, you know, four or five, six people that were really strong, like maybe candidates that I thought that I could work with. And then maybe one of them would actually need some support with something that I could help them with. But through doing that every night, I was at least developing, you know, a couple clients here and there and, um, you know, continuing to build it. Where it started to scale a bit was when I was focused more on trying to kind of seek out the people that were new to town like myself. At first, you know, you moved to a town like Nashville, you have big aspirations for working on hit records and being in the, you know, the rooms with the most successful people. And it's just a challenging thing to break into without some sort of preformed connection that, you know, that someone does for you, introduces you to, um, or just kind of like, you know, luck, which there were definitely a few of those, you know, lucky things too. But for the most part, it was starting from the ground up with people that were also starting from the ground up, as opposed to trying to work your way into a circle that's already very well established where they have their trusted, you know, network. Uh, and then it's pretty wild when you're in a music town like Nashville or I would assume like L.A. and stuff, too, where um, you're starting with these, you know, you were, you're working with a, a good group of like early stage people. And eventually some of them start to get into different circles that are a little more established. And then your work starts to get in front of the, the ears of other people that are in those circles. And that was where I started getting my first like big kind of breaks, I guess you could say, was from some uh someone that i was doing a demo session with who brought in a session player who introduced me to a songwriter uh who i collaborated with and then that songwriter was connected with a, a, a really successful artist and and songwriter 
who he signed to his publishing company. Um, and that opened the door to this, to these really great records that I ended up working on, but it all came from investing my time into someone that was kind of brand new and working on some really basic stuff with them. But then those kind of connections started to um, bring themselves together, which ends up getting into there. But if I had just like sent my resume to that individual that ended up, I ended up becoming their engineer uh, that was very well established, I would have never got a response back, but through developing those connections and letting them naturally grow, you know, eventually you end up in that place. So that was really the path was just trying to stay a thousand percent focused on what my goals were trying to meet as many people as possible and being patient, which is really challenging. Uh, it's still very challenging for me. Um, and then just letting things kind of naturally, you know, progress with a focused intention about, you know, trying to build things up. So I did that for a few years and then I got to a point where I was feeling pretty comfortable I, I was almost at a point where I was going to quit this DJing gig and just be 100% full-time into production and engineering. And, um, but the first thing that I wanted to do was expand into a little bit of a bigger space. So I found um, a studio a little bit outside of town that I took out a lease on. And that was in um, uh, November, or like the end of no November in that year. And uh, so I signed the lease. I'm going to move in in December. And Two weeks before I move in, the club calls me and says, hey, I'm sorry, this is really unexpected, but we're going to shut down January 1st. You're the highest paid DJ here. We got to let you go. Wow. And, it was like, and I was like, oh, my God. So I have no security now. And that was like the little security blanket that I was just holding on tight to that I didn't want to let go of because I knew that even if I had a slow week or a slow month, I could still pay my basic you know, rent and stuff. But moving into this new space was going to triple my overhead so um i needed that now i felt like i really needed it no longer was it like this tiny security blanket it was like my my only you know security knowing that i was had enough continuous sessions coming in consistently um added on with this you know part-time gig that i had was going to make me like barely be able to make it work but i thought that if i moved into this larger space i could maybe attract some some more projects i wouldn't have to work out of uh, out of other studios as much and I could keep that revenue in the company and stuff, you know? So I thought that it could work, but it was like, it was a pretty big risk. Um, it was like barely going to work, you know? And then that happened. So I'm like, I don't know. I, at first I was like, I got to figure out how to get out of this, you know? So I called the guy and I, I started talking to him, you know, about it. And then the more that I thought about it, I was like, all right, well, I just, I, I just need to just step back and just kind of look at like, what is it going to take for me to have that security that I had before with this part-time gig that I was kind of hanging on to. And I started calling every potential artist that I had talked to. I just had like a list of emails and text messages and stuff from people that I had connected with over the past few months. And within like three days, I was fortunate enough to close this project with a band that wanted to do a full album. And the budget for that was going to pay the rent for like two months. So I was like, all right, cool. So I got this. It's going to at least help me like get into it. I just got to dive in and I got to figure out a way to, you know, to, to make it work. But it was a very close call to like, to not jumping in and taking that risk. Um, and I'm really grateful for that band that trusted me to, to work on that project. Cause it literally like saved the ability for me to be able to expand into this uh, larger place. And I don't know if I would have done it had I not been able to find something significant enough to give me a little bit more security in it. But looking back on it, it was a really great lesson to like not do things without um, a focused intention and a clear understanding of economics and knowing that, you know, there's a good possibility you can make it work. 
but I think there's also a really important um, practical thing of, of being a creative and just trusting your gut, your instinct and diving into what you want and having a really clear vision and a really clear plan for it and being willing to do the work and trusting that if you do all of those things, that it will work out. So after having that space um, for a few years, that was great. It really helped, you know, evolve things a little bit further. Uh, but I, I was finding that I had, I had gotten into a lot of these bigger records. I was working with more established artists and this was a small kind of project studio. So most of the projects I was doing a majority of the work in a larger commercial space and using studios like Blackbird and, and Oceanway, uh, Sound Emporium, um, Sony uh, studios like that here in Nashville. And um, I was, after a few years of kind of doing that consistently, I was looking at my my books at the end of one year and was just kind of like adding up all my expenses from booking other studios and then thinking about like what it would cost for me to, you know, pay the, uh, you know, mortgage on a, on a studio property and doing the math. And I was again in a position where I was like, I'm going to double my overhead again maybe triple my overhead again. I'm going to have to save up a pretty good amount of money to, you know, to put down a deposit on a, on a place. But I think I can like barely make this work. So having that experience before, I felt a little bit more confident and there was really less hesitation. I just started telling people I'm going to buy a studio. And it was crazy like how it, it started to happen. And then people started telling me like, hey, I just heard this spot was for sale in this spot. And um, it took about two years of searching wow. for places and and dealing with a gigantic boom in the real estate in Nashville. Had I been in that position two years before, it would have been a lot easier. But all of a sudden, the prices had like doubled and tripled on these studios that I had been had on my vision board for years, you know. So that was pretty like defeating at first. But I just sort of trusted my past experience and kept um, looking and searching and, and just kept telling people, hey, I'm looking for a studio. I'm looking for a studio. And eventually the right spot, you know, came came along. And I was fortunate to you know be connected with uh, with uh, the owner and we hit it off and um, he really wanted his his studio to uh, continue on with a strong you know legacy and trusted me and my you know background and stuff and was kind enough to um, give me the opportunity to to buy it without having to do a ton of like negotiation or bidding wars, which is a really common thing in Nashville right now with how the you know the real estate has been booming and stuff. Uh, and so then I ended up in the spot that I'm at now and I've been here for seven years. Um, wow. So getting to that point where I was ready to purchase a place, that whole process took a decade. And, um, and, and that was kind of what I was, what I was told moving to town that it's a, that at the time that I moved here, it was like, it's a five-year town to kind of get established. And I thought, all right, if it's going to take me five years to get established, once I'm established, maybe within 10 years, I could be in a place, you know, to have that. And it was right around that you know, that mark that I, that I hit that, you know, that goal was really, you know, fortunate. Um, but the idea again was to not have a traditional recording studio where the focus was on just renting studio time. Uh, Cause there's a pretty low ceiling um, with that, but there's an abundant amount of opportunity when you think about using a production facility for a variety of different types of projects, um, still being focused on your prime, on my primary intention of producing records, but being able to leverage the facility for all kinds of different things which will help support me to not have to necessarily worry about where the next gig is going to come from. Um, but know that there's, um, you know, this, this strong range of projects that are always going to be coming through, you know, as long as we continued our focused intention with how we build relationships and spread the word about our, our company. Absolutely. And, uh, 
Also, what's important too is the branding aspect of it as well, I'm sure, because there are, especially in Nashville, there are so many recording studios that choose from, you know, when you're trying to, it, you know, networking, of course, is extremely important, but also the branding aspect of it as well um, can also make a play in making sure that, you know, that uh, people are, are not only aware of what you do, but, but are intrigued about, you know, about what your, you know, what the record shop is all about. Yeah, absolutely. I found that uh, early on. And where I started to really think about branding was really when I first moved to town and I couldn't get a job. And I started that sort of networking thing and, you know, relationships. And, and I thought that I had good creative connections with people, but they ended up working with people that were more established, which makes sense. If they got the opportunity and they can afford it, you know, why would they work with me if they can work with, you know, a producer that's got a few hits, you know, behind them. Um, but I found that so I, so I started reading a ton about business and freelancing. And um, and through that, I kept coming back to a few different really strong principles. One of those was figuring out a way to position yourself as a leader within your field. And that's a pretty challenging thing to do when you don't have uh, uh, the experience and the connections yet. So I started thinking creatively about how to do that. And one of the ways that I dove into doing that was finding an underserved market of a style of music that I was really passionate about that didn't have a lot of options in Nashville. So that was the hip hop community in Nashville, as I'm sure you can imagine, or, or as most people assume, you know, it's very country music and Christian music focused in the past couple decades. It's definitely expanded a lot. And you're seeing wide variety of, of different circles of music, you know, in town that are, that are very well established, not just underground, but very successful artists that are, you know, pop artists and uh, that sort of thing. But um, the hip hop community didn't have a lot of support. I grew up in Detroit. I started as a DJ. I was very much into the the hip hop and R&B and uh, soul and gospel and, and pop lane and stuff. Um, and uh, so I saw, I found this, this uh, need for support within that community. And there was a, a show promoter, uh, her name was Sherry, that I met on Craigslist. And she had posted this thing about looking for artists to play at a showcase. And I wasn't an artist looking to play at a showcase, but I wanted to know where the hip hop artists hung out. And I was asking everybody. So I saw this listing and I sent her a message and said, hey, I'm a producer, you know, I'm not an artist, but I was just really interested in where you were hosting your show. I'd love to come out and, you know, try to meet some some hip hop artists in town. So um, I came out to her show. We met, we became friends and she became um, like my my Nashville hip hop mentor. Um, she kind of introduced me to to all the people that were kind of buzzing in town and um, and she started just telling a bunch of artists about me. She grew up here and she was really had really strong, you know, roots in that community. And uh, she just taught me about where the little where the scenes were and, you know, where the shows were and that sort of thing. And then just started telling every artist that she met, like, hey, there's this dude, Geo from Detroit, he's really you know, great hip hop producer and engineer. He's got a little studio on Music Row um, if you're looking for somewhere to record. And then I just started getting calls. It was great. So I found this little community that I was able to to support. And that was kind of the first step um, within that. So once I started working with these artists and learning more that they didn't have really like an outlet for venues to perform at, because a lot of venues really weren't into bringing that style of music in because um, they didn't think there was an audience for it. I, um, I set out to find a venue because um, the venues that they were playing at were all kind of spread out, like kind of far outside of town. And I thought, well, what if I could like convince somebody like in town that's a little more centrally located that there is a community and there is a need and there are people that will come out to shows. So I found this um, venue that was brand new, just opened up. There was a rock band that I was producing that played a showcase there. And so it was a great opportunity for me to just get a natural introduction to the owner of the venue 
they had like just opened a couple weeks before so they were very hungry to book you know shows and stuff so i just pitched them on the idea i said man you know i've been here for about a year um i've gotten really connected into the you know the hip-hop scene around here and they don't have anywhere to perform i could bring uh you know maybe once a month um i could bring you know six seven artists out to you know to, to fill out a night uh of music they have strong local fan base you know that that would come out um and we could turn this into a little residency and um they took me up on the idea so um for a couple of years i hosted a monthly um residency at this venue um and then that started spreading out we started doing some um some rap battles and then dj battles um in like the college areas outside of town um and uh, and i got kind of like you know really strongly rooted in that scene and then what happened all those artists wanted to come you know record with me and it, and it helped open up you know new relationships and stuff uh so finding that niche market that isn't really being you know served or even just just a market that you can provide any sort of resource for even if they have uh you know these other outlets already what can you do to provide more value for them and that was where i got involved with a platform called balcony tv uh which was a, a viral music show that i produced for 10 years and I discovered it through starting something similar to it in my studio, where I would bring in a variety of different artists in a similar concept of trying to serve artists outside of the mainstay genres in Nashville and help them network. You know, so it was kind of like a networking hang, but we would film and record acoustic performances with each artist that came out. So I'd throw a party once a month at my studio, invite a dozen artists out. Uh, we'd have a night where everybody's kind of hanging and, and sitting around, and then we'd film and record uh, these acoustic performances and put them up online but i found that it was really challenging to like market content and produce it all and create it and then try to run my business so this was a really good lesson in not trying to, to be a jack of all trades but to really focus on what you're you know the best at um so i started doing some research on some other successful viral music you know programs and stuff and i discovered this show called balcony tv which started in ireland it was started by a, a, a cinematographer named uh, Stephen o'regan and they had a band called The Script come and play on their show um, maybe uh, a few months or like a year before they really blew up and had their first big hit single. So when that first song came out, everyone was going on YouTube searching for The Script and they found Balcony TV. This video blows up with, you know, millions of views. And I don't I don't know the whole backstory, but that ended up turning it into this idea where like, let's create let's create a concept about this. And so they had this idea where they're going to release a performance on top of a, ba a balcony on top of some building and, and, and they started in Dublin uh, once a day. And then that expanded um, into London uh, in Germany. And then I discovered it. So they were maybe a year or two in um, when I, when I discovered it. And I was basically just like looking for some mentorship, you know, how did you guys develop this? How'd you get your content out and, you know, and market it and that sort of thing. And so he kind of told me the story around it. And then we got to talking more about it and I was telling him kind of what I was doing and, um that led to me starting the first u.s balcony um in nashville and um that opened up this this other leadership opportunity where now the record shop was hosting this um at the time we were filming every week so it was a, we were releasing a video every day so every week we would film seven artists and um as word started to spread and as the balcony tv brand started to spread i had every single publicist artist manager um emailing me trying to get their artists on the show because there was this, you know, viral opportunity to open up to an international, open up their, their artists to an international audience. And so um, without really recognizing at the time, cause I was thinking very like, you know, localized, 
I was able to develop this network with people that otherwise, you know, how would I have ever connected with, um, at least in that quick of time. Um, and then it started opening up all these other doors. So like we weren't generating necessarily a ton of revenue from the show itself. Um, but what I was developing was a bunch of projects where an artist from Ireland comes in to, to play a, a show in Nashville. They see that there's a balcony uh, TV station there. They hit us up to play on the show and they're like, I'm going to be here for a month. I'm looking for a producer. They come by and meet with me and now I'm producing their, you know, the record. So that happened like over and over and over again. And then our, you know, our logo, our brand is on ten, uh, thousands of, you know, videos that are spread around, you know, the world. Um, by the time that we ended up selling the platform, um, we had 60 some cities around the world that were producing the show. Um, hundreds of millions of viewers. Uh, it was a really great, um, you know, endeavor that all sort of started from the idea of like, how can I serve the, you know, the market um, in Nashville? So reading, sitting there, you know, years before reading that book and saying, you know, how you start to, you know, really develop a career as a freelancer is becoming a leader in your field. And I'm looking down the street at Music Row at all of the record, you know, the successful record producers and the labels and managers that have decades of experience. I'm like, how am I going to be a leader in any capacity whatsoever? But I was very, feel very fortunate to be able to like kind of dive into that creatively and find some, you know, so, solutions for it. Um, so that was a really, you know, helpful way to start to build the brand. Um, the other aspect that, that I, that I, that I really hold dear to me that, that was really helped with branding and just my own mindset is creating, uh, what I call a passion statement, but it's basically a more creative way of saying mission statement, you know? Um, so, and this isn't like the mission statement that you see at like Arby's that they have like in dusted in grease in the back of their, you know, wall or something that nobody that works there pays attention to. This is something that is a statement that that you feel like is a very honest and authentic explanation of what your passion is, what your goals are, and how you're going to serve your your clients and artists on a daily basis. So I, in the early stages of figuring out the record shop, read a business book about the importance of having a mission statement. And while I thought, eh, maybe it's a little corny or whatever, I kind of dug into it and went through the exercise. And through doing it, I pulled out some really empowering um, statements that I use to share with people about what we do as a business, but that I also use to hold myself accountable to continue to work at the standard that I expect myself to work at on a daily basis, regardless of the challenges and adversity that, you know, that I'm going through. So where I discovered my mission statement was through two places. One, I was doing, as I mentioned, a ton of reading and outside of like the, the more like business focused books, I was reading a lot about philosophy and like self-development and mindset and just trying to get your like your mind and your spirit and your body in a good place to be creative and to be successful and there was a philosopher named william james i was reading one of his books and in that book he had a quote that says the best use of life is to use it for something that outlasts it and i read through that and then kind of kept like reading and then all of a sudden i just had like this feeling and i went back and read it again and there was just something very 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 powerful about that line that i just felt super connected with and as I started to think about it a bit, I realized that one of the things was that it gave myself like a level of uh, empowerment and value in the work that I was doing that was bigger than me. Uh, because I could think about every time that I sit down to work on a song or I'm wrapping up a mix on something, I'm asking myself, is this something that I've put the effort and work and, and focused intention into that has the potential to outlast myself? Something that is that has the potential to be timeless or to make a 
strong impact that will um, continue on with people, you know, a song that someone will remember, even if it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be every single song you work on becomes a legendary hit that, you know, is around forever. But if it impacts, you know, a handful of people and that impact sticks with them or helps them in a certain way, it leads to something. It just gave me this idea of having more purpose within the, within the idea of just following something that I was just creatively excited about. So foundationally, I like making music. I'm inspired by it. I enjoy doing it. It's it's a you know it's a fun thing, but if that creation of something can have such a bigger impact on other people, how much more empowering is is that, and how much more inspired will I become if I'm focused on that idea? So that became the first part of it, and that's a quote that just like is always kind of in my mind, especially in times of of adversity, to kind of push through, stay focused on. The second part of it was kind of part of the more traditional exercise of creating a mission statement, where you're thinking about. How are you serving your your clientele on a day-to-day basis? Which is basically, you know, the definition of like what you create a mission statement around. And I, so I thought a bit about what I enjoyed the most about the work that, that I did. And one of the things that came to mind is when I'm like finishing a song or in the process of working with an artist where they have those kind of goosebump moments or someone like tears up a little bit or they just, uh, you know, affirm with me that, you know, you just really captured exactly how I wanted this song to sound. And that is so fulfilling um, to me to know that we created this idea that just came from like a thought in their brain or in our brains together. And then we turn that into something tangible that you can hear and listen to over and over again that will that will now, you know, exist in a in a in a physical form or an audible form. And that aspect of my career was really what inspired me the most. And that was the question that I was asking myself. So I thought, like, how could I take that feeling and that experience and translate it into a statement where if someone asked me what I did, I could be very clear on, like, what drives me, and you know, what, what the the goals that we have and how we serve the artists that we work with. And so I, I kind of whittled that down into serving the the artist's creative vision. So our mission statement be, became to to serve the artist's creative vision and create art that will outlast us. And so when people ask me what I do and what I'm passionate about, that's what I tell them. When people ask me what kind of music I make, I say purposeful music because I'm a sort of multi-genre producer and engineer. I'm kind of genre agnostic with what I'm inspired by. I'm more inspired about purpose and intention. And that doesn't mean that every song has to have a change the world message around it. It just means that we're clear on what our goals are. And if that's having everybody get up and party and have a good time, that's awesome. We want to be in that, you know, that mindset. If that's really helping someone through some very serious type of trauma or telling a fun story or, you know, whatever that is that we're focused on the, you know, the intention of what it is. And so that statement has become a very powerful way for us within a sentence to be able to share the intention behind the record shop and what someone can expect to feel and experience when they come to work with us. So I think those two things have been the most powerful aspects of um, what I've learned in maybe being successful or working towards success as far as branding goes. I really liked what you said about passion statement. Uh, that's because I, I same thing when, when starting 8020 records was what our purpose was. And our purpose was to develop a, an artist friendly label as, as friendly as we can make it, which is why we offered 80% royalties back to artists. But I really liked what you said about passion statement. Cause it's true. It's like, yeah, mission is, is important to have a mission, but I love, you know, especially for the field that we're in, passion statements just rings true. So <laughs> I really like that a lot. Um, so let's talk about the the um, Studio uh, Musician Academy. So this is one of your new ventures. Can you talk a little bit more about what this is and how that came about? 
Yeah, uh, we re I recently started the Studio Musician Academy with the goal to empower musicians that are looking to have a successful career path as a as a gigging musician. So not artists, but like instrumentalists that uh, want to be hired by an artist or be hired by a producer to work in a studio uh, and give them the same sort of resources and outlets that producers and engineers have uh, or that marketing professionals have. You know, there's all kinds of experts across various aspects of the music industry that are sharing their their knowledge and experiences to be able to help empower the next generation of uh, you know successful uh, people in the industry. But I, I've I've seen more and more that the musicians that are like the gigging musicians don't have as didn't have as much of that support. Um, there's a good amount of YouTube content for you know guitar players that want to find a new cool pedal uh, or see some like gear reviews and decide what amp to buy and that sort of thing, which is all very great. But how do you take that gear and make a living with it? So being in Nashville, which is at, at this point probably the the strongest area of consistent, you know, every day there's countless live tracking sessions happening with you know with musicians, session musicians that are being hired. There's all kinds of tours that are routed out of Nashville. So many bands that are being put together. There's a lot of opportunity, um, and and that opportunity exists in LA still as well. And then with modern technology, the opportunity to be a session player and never leave your house is endless because there's all kinds of marketplaces online, you know, to do that. Um, but there's, but you can't really learn from the legends that you look up to because there's no outlet for that. There are some places that kind of do some like backstory interviews and stuff, but I found that there wasn't a resource that would really be like the masterclass version of what you would look for if you were a, a you know, a studio musician or a session player. And as a studio owner, I received so many um, emails, messages from folks that are coming into town or that are just trying to get into the industry or they just got out of music school and they're trying to figure out where to start with their career. And their first thought is call a studio because that's where records are made, you know. Um, but they they quickly learn that as a studio and as a producer, the people that I need to hire are the people that are tried and true and that for the most part, because I don't have the flexibility in my budget necessarily to just like experiment with someone who in most cases, you know, so for the average musician, the way that you get in is not necessarily through the door of the studio, but more through um, learning the craft and the process. So you can connect with other artists and songwriters that get you in or connect with other musicians that can kind of bring you in or maybe be in a position where, which has happened with me, where someone is someone else has brought in a musician, which then I get to meet them and have the experience of working with them. And then I can start to hire them. But, you know, through that relationship building, but in order for those musicians to be able to get called back when they find that opportunity, I feel like we could expedite that process of them being prepared for it. We give them more insight on the process and the methodology um, and creative uh, approach of the musicians that are the ones that you're hearing on all the, the hit records that, you know, that are being made. So my thought was, let me go out and talk to my friends and, and, and find some new people that that I haven't necessarily worked with, but are the legends, you know, in the field. And let's break down their creative process, their career journey, the way that they work, and then get really deep into how executable um, uh, plans for how you can step into a session and be prepared for a variety of different scenarios. Um, so that, that was my goal. I want to be able to help empower the next generation of studio musicians to be successful and give them the same resources that other uh, professionals uh, throughout the you know music industry have from expert mentorship. Uh, so I started that with a podcast, which has been really great. And the focus of the Studio Musician podcast is to interview the musicians and put a spotlight on their career journey. Um, you know, they, they're behind the scenes making the records and 
they're they're not often talked about you know as much um apple music has been doing some great things creating playlists for songwriters and studio musicians where they highlight these great recordings that they've that they've been a part of you know creating i wanted to create a narrative uh, around telling the story about you know what inspired you to start you know playing and where did you start how did you end up moving to the place where you you know where you work where did those opportunities come from what lessons did you learn along the way and then diving into the technical side of things you know why did you choose this guitar over that guitar or this snare over that one or how does this drum fill work with this song versus that one you know all the little nuanced elements that make the difference between sort of the uh the early stage you know musician that can play their instrument and someone that is a legendary session player that is a part of really great successful records you know uh so we started with that podcast and it's more it's a storytelling you know narrative where we try to pull out some lessons that you can learn along the way and uh the studio musician um, platform itself is a membership-based community that has access to one-on-one mentorship lessons uh, virtual lessons that are pre-recorded um that are focused on individual instruments and individual scenarios within that. So we have a series, uh, for example, it's called Behind the Song, where we take hit songs that the that the musician mentor has played on, and we take all the stems and we break them down and basically recreate what they did and explain how the sound was created, how the part was created, why they're playing the notes that they're playing, um, and then how they you know they executed it during the you know the recording session. Uh, we have another um, series called Getting the Gig that is more focused on like, how do you get the job in the first place? And what are the things that um, the, the lessons that you've learned along the way that help that have helped you find those you know opportunities? Um, and then we have one called Making the Sound, which is really focused on the gear side of things. Um, so what type of gear are these players using? Um, how are they you know utilizing it? And then not only the gear itself, but the parts that they're playing, because that's a very important aspect of it too. Um, is you know you can have the great gear um but how do you come up with that part on the spot that is going to be the perfect you know fit for that song so we take different scenarios and you know and break down that process and then our goal is to leave the the um the apprentice music the musician apprentice that's watching the the video with the knowledge where they can then take and and, and implement into their session um so we my focus is it for to to be a very uh intentional and executable um, uh, lessons around things, as opposed to just sort of like general things. I find with a lot of the sort of um, insight around that type of education, there's very few folks that are focused in on things that where we're breaking it down into things that are um, always executable. It may be like this this EQ setting worked on this track, but we're not necessarily explaining why it worked on this track. We're just saying this is the preset. And then someone goes and tries to use that and they're like, well, it doesn't sound great on my track. So what we're trying to focus on is a larger, you know, vision around the uh, philosophies that go into it, which then you can take and apply to your, you know, individual uh, projects. Um, and then we have a series that are focused specifically on home recording versus commercial studio recording. So helping uh, drummers, guitar players, uh, keyboard players improve their home recording on their own uh, for the people that are more in like the remote uh, session world marketplace where they may not be going in and doing their session in a commercial studio every day but they're working from home how do we help them improve you know their process uh you know with that with that type of work um so that's our goal you know we're in the early stages of it um we're just a little under a year into it um we've got uh maybe a dozen uh sessions with the mentors on our platform itself the platform is free to sign up for and there's a bunch of free content on there 
and then there's other content that you can unlock by by purchasing the you know the entire thing or getting a full subscription to it but we wanted it to really be something where we're making expert mentorship available to everyone so on the site when you make a free account you can go in and you don't see like 30 seconds and then have to pay to watch the rest of it we literally give like full modules that you can watch and you can decide if i enjoy this and this is valuable for me then i can uh sign up for the rest of it but it's um and then and then we're all over you know social media sharing uh expert excerpts from our lessons and then uh, a bunch of you know stuff from our podcast and then the podcast is you know available everywhere so my goal is just to help tell the story and creative process of the successful artists in the industry and and i hope that we can empower the next generation and um help that side of the industry that hasn't been you know served in the in as strong of a way as the rest of the professionals have been yeah i was checking out the site before and it was it looks truly amazing so congratulations on the on this new venture it's it, it's amazing we'll definitely post uh put in the show notes a bunch of links um uh so people can go ahead and check it out so um so congratulations on that thank you so let's wrap things up here. So I do have a couple of quick questions for you. So the first one is, what was the first concert you ever been to? Oh, man. Weird Al. Yes, that's a good one. Yeah, That's a really good one. I like, at first I thought it was going to be goofy. You know, I was a little kid and first concert. I think it's the first concert my dad took me to. We'll, we'll, we'll just say that it is because that's a good one. I... I I saw Weird Al once at Summerfest, actually, and wasn't able to actually get into the crowd. So I only were able to kind of sort of see him side stage. But, you know, it, he puts on a show like he puts on a show and it, it's truly amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. What is your go to song to sing in the car? Whatever I'm working on that day. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, when you're in that mode of, you know, production, I mean, and also when I when I sleep, I like man, I wake up in the middle of the night and the melody's in my head or I'm like editing a session in my mind while I'm trying to sleep. Um, it just stays like, you know, in, ingrained or whatever. So yeah, us- usually it's that, like whatever I'm, I'm working on. I actually don't listen to music in the car um, very very often because I'm listening to music, you know, usually about 16 hours a day. True, very true. So we covered a lot of ground in this interview, but if you were to just be able to give only one piece of advice to somebody who's looking to develop a career in the music industry, what would that one piece of advice be? Focus every day on patient persistence. People will tell you to be patient, but we can't be patient without the persistence of trying to move forward. People want us to sit and kind of wait for the opportunity to, you know, continue working, um, but just, you know, be patient and know, well, it'll, it'll happen if you keep, you know, going after it. And the creative inside of us is like not feeling fulfilled because we have these gigantic goals that we want to accomplish. And we want to feel like our creativity and our art is being, is connecting with, you know, with, with people. And when that doesn't happen immediately, it can be very um, defeating, but if we focus on maintaining patience, trusting that we're going to get where we want to go, but not waiting, we want to find opportunities. When I couldn't get a job in town, I went out and found work for myself. Uh, when when I wasn't able to um, find a way into financing a, a studio, I called every person I knew that was connected with uh, with banks and lenders and that sort of thing. And I found a small bank that would look at me as a freelancer differently than someone that has a W-2 income. Uh, there's, there's always a way if you can stay focused and persistent around it, 
but we have to stay patient in order to stay sane because the hard part is staying patient, you know, along the way. And through that process, the most important thing to remember is that the only way that you can fail is if you give up. As long as you're continuing to work towards your goals and believing in where you're going to end up, or at least having faith that you're moving a little step further each day towards that goal, then you're never a failure. The only way you fail is when that journey stops. Couldn't agree more. So we'll end it with that note. Uh, thank you, Gio, so much again. It was a pleasure seeing you again. And uh, hopefully we're going to be reconnecting at NAM. So thank you so much. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thank you so much for listening to Creatives Prevail. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave us a review. They are an immense help. Now go out there and make something happen.